0: You're listening to Life Church Podcast with Pastor Bill Carpenter. Seats, prepare our hearts, get ready for the rest of the service. John Warden is coming right now to share a TMT with all of
1: you, and it's exciting. Well, good morning, everyone. So yeah, I just wanted to take a moment. Uh, most of you are aware that uh, I'm. Director of Global Missions here at the church. And one of the things that I want to always kind of have us uh, be aware of is what's happening around the world good and uh, challenging. The things that God is doing and moving and the areas that the church is growing, much like we we talked about or we saw here a few weeks past in the Iranian church, for those who are a part of that evening. Um, But there's also, as we know, there's a lot happening in the world that's really hard and really challenging and really difficult. And so I think for us as a body to be aware of that and to know how to pray and to pray, um, as we did earlier this morning, but I want to share another one um, with you here uh, just for a few moments. As many of you know, uh, my wife and family and I, we lived in Bolivia in South America, and I don't know if you've been reading any uh, information coming, about, uh, coming out of South America, or you've seen this actually, USA Today has had a few articles on it this last week, but there's a lot of really hard stuff happening right now in Bolivia. Um, to give you a little bit of a background, uh, the president, his name is Abel Morales. He's been in office for about 14 years, um, and they have four-year terms in Bolivia. And so he's, um, he went through his first two terms, um, and he didn't want to leave office, and so he changed the Constitution to stay in office, and some other things have happened. And now he's been up for re-election again and I should say, under the umbrella of all this has been lots of suspicion and lots of corruption. When we were there, for example, one election that he won, there was more votes cast for him than there were people in the country. So that gives you a little bit nice. of uh, understanding of where we're Stuck coming from here. It's been a difficult situation. Um, and so they've had a, a recent reelection uh, just uh, mid-October. And uh, the way it works is you have, there's about five or six different people who were up for the election, That's and they I'm have an initial have vote, um, initial vote and if there is anyone who is higher than the rest of their opponents by wow. 10%, That's then great. they are automatically elected and they move forward. But if there's the, the, the leading candidates are within 10% of each other, then they have a runoff. Well, the first day of the counting of the votes, there was a 1% difference between President uh, Morales and his uh, opponents, his leading opponent. They paused the voting, uh, the counting of the votes, and they came back two days later, and he was up by 11%. So there was lots of suspicion about the corruption that may have happened in that. Well, out of that has come lots of protesting, lots of anger, uh, lots of really difficult things. So right now in the country... Um, there are blockades that are uh, blocking all of the major cities, and there's now becoming food shortages. There's lots of violence, um, lots of uh, people protesting the military. Um, while they're still on the side of the president, the police department has turned, and now they're having a coup joining the Protestant, or I'm sorry joining the protesters and um, kind of standing up and fighting back against this. There has been uh, lots of destruction of property. Uh, there's been several deaths. So it's it's a really, really difficult situation. So I want to take a moment for us to do three things today. Number one, uh, Pray for three things today. Number one, pray for the president. Pray for Ava Morales. Pray that God would capture his heart and that uh, the Lord would continue to do a work in him. Two, uh, pray for the country. Pray for the violence. Pray for what's happening, that there would be peace and that that would be a resolve soon. And number three, to pray for the church. There is a budding church that's in Bolivia. It is a um, historically a Catholic church, but it's very syncretistic with the animistic religion, so there's lots of mixing of um, weird stuff that goes on, but there is a solid Christian church core that's there, and it's growing, and this is the time and the place I believe this church can stand up and that they can witness, they can be bold. Uh, They can serve and they can be a light uh, for their country about what God has for them. So I want to just take a moment uh, briefly, just not only to give you that update for us as a church, just to pray for the situation in Bolivia and to pray for God's spirit to be at work and to intervene and to bring peace for that country. So could you join me in praying for that this morning? Heavenly Father, we come to you here pausing for just a moment Lord, we ask for the country of Bolivia and all that is happening, Lord. We know that you are very aware and that you are in the midst of all of that's happening there, Lord. Your spirit is at work. God, we pray for peace over this country. Lord, we pray that your peace, which surpasses understanding, Lord, would would be at work in this place, in this country, amongst these people. God, we pray against all of the violence, Lord. We pray that you would bring peace in the violence. God, we pray for those who are struggling now because there's a scarcity of food, Lord. We pray that you would provide and that, and that your spirit would bring resources, Lord, and that you would, you would take care and protect those right now who are suffering. Lord, we pray for President Abel Morales. God, we pray that you would capture his heart. Lord, that your Holy Spirit would be at work in him and that you would twist his thinking in such a way that he would begin to hear and know and understand more about you and your character and your love God, we pray that your spirit would, would convict him and, Lord, would transform his heart as a leader, Lord, that he would turn and would follow you and, and would govern and make decisions um, of justice and of mercy um, according to your will. God, we pray, uh, Lord, for the church. Lord, just yes. reminded this morning in Psalms 16, Lord, the promises that you have, and these are your promises for your people, for your church, church, Lord, that you would be their portion, God, we ask. God, that you would secure them and that you, Lord, would reinforce for them, Lord, your love and your power and your protection. God, we pray that they would delight in you, that they would be courageous and they would stand boldly, God, that they would they would proclaim with power and authority, Lord, your goodness and your love across their nation. God, we pray that you would counsel them right, Lord, right now, Lord, that you would protect their hearts. Lord, may their eyes be on you and may they realize that your right hand with you beside them, God, they will not be sh- and cannot be shaken. Lord, we pray that your Spirit would continue to strengthen and grow the Church of Bolivia, God. That they would that their ministry would be wide and would be expanded, and Lord. That they would love and serve the people, especially now and during this time, Lord. When there is turmoil and there is destruction and there is evil happening in their country, God, bless the Church and your yes. people to be your people right now for your glory. So, God, may your spirit protect and move and work in Bolivia for your glory, God, that we might look back and see the way in which this trial has changed the people, that their hearts would be turned to you for your honor and for your praise. We pray this morning in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. All right, let's prepare
0: our hearts to read God's word this evening. I'll be reading from uh, the Gospel of John, chapter 4, um, and uh, I'll be reading a passage, uh, verses 1 through 42. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And the woman said to him, "'Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship.' And Jesus said to her, "'Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews.' But the hour is coming, and now here, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. And the woman said to Him, I know that Messiah is coming, He who is called Christ. When He comes, He will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, What do you seek? Or, Why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, Come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. Lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life. So the sower and the reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all things that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. They say to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe. For we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the
2: world. God's Word. Thank you, Pastor. I got a question for you. When was the last time you were so excited about something you forgot to eat? You think of a time, something like that? I'm not talking about where you had kind of a big moment, maybe a big game or a big musical performance or a test or something, and you kind of have an anxious stomach. Not that. Something where you're just so captured by something, so, so much energy for it, that food becomes kind of a secondary concern. Like, oh, I've, the day's gone by and I've forgotten to eat. Maybe it's a, a big paper you're working on for school, or, or maybe it's a business venture that you're jumping into, um, or maybe it's a hobby that you're really passionate about. For me, uh, one clear example comes to mind. A couple of you know that I like to fish. I love to fish for people, but when I'm not fishing for people, I like to fish for actual fish. And it's amazing how the two correlate sometimes. But uh, I have a friend who I believe likes to fish even more than I do. And we happen to be on this really nerdy team of walleye fishermen who fishes against other people mostly for bragging rights. And what I've noticed about this guy, I call him the Michael Jordan of our team, is that he'll go a whole day, a whole tournament, and he won't eat anything. And I mean, I love fishing. I really do. Most of you that have ever fished with me, you know I'm pretty focused and pretty intense. But I also love to eat. And I'd rather combine those two wonderful things than try to choose between the two. Not my friend. He's not touching food. The whole day he'll just go. He might drink a bottle of water and that's it. He's so intensely focused on the task at hand. And did you know that Jesus had things that were like that for him? He sure did. That's so what we're going to look at in our scripture today, things that made Jesus so excited that he didn't even think about food. We're in our series in John today, and I'm covering a giant section of scripture. I'm sure Pastor Bill's not going to want to read my text ever again. That, that took quite a while. But this is one of the most compelling stories in all of the New Testament, and why we, why we decided to, to handle this all in, in one chunk, in one sermon, is because last fall, Pastor Bill preached a fantastic sermon about the first half of this story, The Woman at the Well, and I'd encourage you to go back and listen to it. It's in our Encounter series, and it's still a sermon that really messed with how I viewed this story and, and, um, and changed, really, the way that I see it. And so I would encourage you to go back and look at it. You might see that Pastor Bill preached on the pre-conversion story of The Woman at the Well. I'm going to look at her story post conversion like, what happens after she meets Jesus? Because a lot of times, the first half of this text gets all the attention, but a lot of cool stuff happens after she meets Jesus. So we're going to spend some time looking at that today. And in order to do that, I want to quickly summarize her encounter with Jesus. And I, I know there's going to be many bunny trails available, so I'm praying I don't get off on any of them, because uh, this story is gripping. It's a page-turner. It's, it's a fantastic story. And so let's start at verse 3. And I'm just going to roll right through it and try to summarize what happens in the text here. And the text starts off with a little geography. So could we pull up our map. I'm a visual person, visual learner. And so um, I've got this beautiful, colorful map. When you hear that, that Jesus is wanting to go from Judea to Galilee, that doesn't really mean anything for you unless you see the map. And then there's this big blue section called Samaria there that it would, the text would say he had to go through Samaria. And geographically, I think, well, that makes sense. He does have to go through... Um, Samaria to get there. But actually in that day and time, many Jews would actually go around Samaria. So it was about a three days journey from Judea up to Galilee in the north. Uh, but many Jews hated Samaritans so much and didn't want to get, you know, have the risk of getting beat up by thugs in Samaria. So they would actually go down to the Jordan River Valley, cross over there, and then go up and then cross back over in Galilee, making it a six-day journey. All right. Now, some of you, you encounter people maybe at the grocery store or at the mall or whatever that you're really not wanting to talk to, maybe you don't like them very much, and you try to avoid them by going around you know, the other way, maybe going to a store, you don't really want to look for something. If you walk three days out of your way, you can't stand someone, right? That's the, that's the story with the Jews and the Samaritans, so let's talk about that for a minute, because that's a big part of the context here. What's going on with them? Why is there so much hatred? Well, just to refer back to the map, that blue section in the middle called Samaria um, was captured or conquered by the Assyrians in 722 BC. So this is 700 years in the making, this giant feud between the Jews and the Samaritans. And after the Assyrians captured Samaria in 722, what they did was they, they took the most professional people out and exiled them off to Assyria, right? They took their best people And then they left a bunch of their people to colonize and settle that area called Samaria. And so there was this giant exile, and then there was a bunch of Jews that were left. And of course, Jewish people were told, whatever you do, don't marry foreign people. It causes a lot of trouble. And then eventually, they're going to introduce you to their gods. It's going to pull you away from Yahweh. Well, what happened? They started marrying the Assyrian people that were settling that land. And of course, having children with them. And you can imagine what it was like when these um, Jewish exiles started coming back to their land. They're like, seriously? These guys conquered us? They killed our relatives? And you married them? And there was just a lot of heat around that, right? I mean, that's a really disappointing thing. But not only that, these Jewish people in in the land of Samaria had started adopting some of the, the religious practices of the Assyrian people that they had married. And some of those practices were as wicked as like child sacrifice, there's so some really, really big things going on. And so the Jews said, no, they're not Abraham's children. They're not part of us. We have nothing to do with them. We're walking around Samaria. We don't want anything to do with this group of people. And the Samaritans felt the same way. Eventually, about 400 BC, um, 300 years after the exile, the Samaritans said, well, fine. We're not going to go to Jerusalem to worship God. We're going to build our own temple right here on Mount Gerizim in Samaria. So now we don't have to associate with the Jews either. We don't want anything to do with the Jewish people either. And they almost built out their own religious heritage around the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. So Jesus is stepping into this cultural feud today, and he arrives at this prominent place, Jacob's Well. And of course, he sends his disciples away, sends 12 men away to get food for 13 people. It's about right. Right, guys? You know, that's, that's how many guys it takes. And I think Jesus really knew, like, this is a delicate situation. I probably can't hand this one over to the disciples yet. They hadn't been with him that long. He's like, this this one I need to handle myself. And then this Samaritan woman comes to draw water, and she comes at noon. This is a hot region of the world. Like, this is like being down in Phoenix or something. And so you don't do anything at noon. You don't, you don't walk your dog at noon unless you hate your dog and you want it to die. You don't do anything at noon, especially not go to draw water. So the women would go usually in the morning to draw water together. It was kind of a social time. And this woman comes, not, at, not in the morning, but at noon, and she comes alone because she's an outcast. She's an outcast. We're going to learn a little bit more as the text goes on. And Jesus does something crazy. He strikes up a conversation with her and asks her for a drink. And to this question, the woman responds, how is it that you, a Jew, ask me, a woman of Samaria, for a drink? She's like, are you serious? Don't you, haven't you been around here for a while? Like, don't you know what's gone on in the last 700 years or so? And to her question, we have to ask, well, what's wrong with this picture? Because to us, this wouldn't seem abnormal at all, right? Asking a person at a well for a drink, you don't have a cup, okay. But in that culture, in that time, there was at least three big no-nos here that Jesus does. Number one, he's a Jewish man, he's a devout Jewish man, and for a devout Jewish man to speak with a woman, that, especially that he didn't know, alone was improper. On top of that, Jesus is already seen as a holy man, a teacher of the law, as we saw with Nicodemus, and so he's not supposed to be doing this at all. This is a no-no. But secondly, Jewish people did not associate with Samaritans for all the reasons we just stated But on top of that, they believed if they would eat or drink from any of their goblets, it would make them ceremonially unclean. So they'd have to go through this process of becoming clean again. And they didn't want to have to go through that. And so Jesus doesn't mind that because we all know Jesus um, actually does the opposite. When when, uh, he partakes of something unclean, he actually reverses it, makes it clean, as we see with the lepers in the other gospels. But she doesn't know that, and Jesus doesn't tell her that. And then we see the third reason that Jesus isn't supposed to be here is because this woman has a bad reputation. We don't know exactly why she's alone, but it's implied, I think, in the text that her reputation isn't the greatest, and yet Jesus is here plowing through all these cultural barriers to speak to this woman, and he responds to her with this. He says, look, if you knew the gift of God to you and who speaks to you, you would ask him and he would give you living water. Living water. And this is a double meaning in the text. Uh, we, we think of it as, oh, this is obvious. Jesus is offering her eternal life. He's offering her the, the thing that's going to quench her inner thirst. But she would have heard it as, he's got a source of fresh water. He's got a source of running water somewhere that I don't know about. And that been, that would, there would have been a premium on that kind of water. So she's interested, right? He says, living water. And what's crazier, he says, if you drink this water, you'll never be thirsty again. What a promise. So this water will actually become in you a spring of water welling up to eternal life, clearly a reference to the Spirit. And she's still thinking about regular water, although I think at this point she's like, never be thirsty again. This sounds a little too good to be true. She says, give me this water so I don't have to come to the well anymore, do this walk of shame that I do every day at noon. And then Jesus starts poking around in her heart. He says, all right, I'll give you some. Why don't you go get your husband? Major sore spot. And the text doesn't tell us enough about the woman to know what had brought about this tumultuous past. Like, she had five husbands. And I've always understood this to be like, she's sort of, you know, and a lot of the commentators go here that, that she's struggling with immorality and promiscuity. I know she's living with a man. But I think Pastor Bill's interpretation of this text was really, was really wise. Like, women in that day often didn't have control if they were divorced, right? So she could have just gotten into five bad marriages. And maybe her weakness is she doesn't know how to pick a guy. We don't know what's going on. But I think that it's likely she's a really rejected person. A really rejected person. Now she's living with a guy that she's not married to. But I imagine there's a lot of children in the picture. Five husbands. She's got to provide. She's got to take care for things. So she's probably one of those people that maybe she's doing things she's not proud of, but she's a survivor. She's trying to make it. And she's culturally shamed for it. Whatever the case, whatever the real story is with this woman it's clear that her past is a huge sore spot. And like any pastor or counselor or therapist knows, when you touch that sore spot in a person, a lot of times there's a change of subject, isn't there? Like, hey, did you see the Vikes game the other day? Maybe they'll actually make to the playoffs this year. I mean, who would have thought? And, and you know, it's, it's like she, she quickly changes the subject and she goes the route of theological disagreement, right? She's like, I think you might be a prophet. Hey, I got a question for you. Uh, we worship on this mountain, Mount Gerizim, and you guys worship in Jerusalem. Which, what's the right place to worship? Let's talk about anything but my husband's, you know, kind of thing. And Jesus says, okay, you want to talk about temples? Let's talk about temples. I'm actually making them all obsolete. And, um, you know, people are going to worship different in the future. I'm replacing the temple. And what he didn't tell her, but I'm sure he was thinking it is, I'm about to make you into a temple of the Holy Spirit. And I know you don't feel worthy right now, but you're going to actually house the living God. It's crazy. Again, she tries to change the subject or just kind of smooth things over and resolve the issues. She says, Yeah, I'm, I'm sure the Messiah will work all this out when he gets here. And Jesus says, Bingo, I'm he. That's the guy you're talking to. What a remarkable story. You know, a lot of times it, we stop the sermon right here because there's just so much there, right? But this is where I want to begin focusing our time together because, look, the woman goes away. She leaves her water jar. So what was important to her before is no longer as important. She just met Jesus. And then the disciples return with food and say, hey, Jesus, you want a burrito? And then Jesus says something that they're even more confused about. He's like, guys, I have food to eat that you do not know about. And you can just imagine them going, what is it with this guy? He tells us to go get food. Now he's got food. Who gave him food? Did you give him food? Did she give him food? I hope not. She's a Samaritan. You know, and, and they don't get it. But he says, guys, look, you know, I, this is what he means here. Guys, you have no idea how cool this is. You didn't see what just happened, how awesome this was. But this stuff that I'm doing, it really gets me going. It makes it, it's, it's so important to me. It's like I don't even need to eat. It's like food to me. What makes Jesus so excited that he doesn't need to eat well, it's two words. It's the harvest. Jesus said, my food is to do the will of my Father and accomplish His work. And then He describes that work as the harvest. He says, the fields are white for the harvest. And it reminds me of some of the conversations I've had with farmers in our church. And I, I did a little research this week. In other words, I texted Larry. Um, <laughs> And I said, Larry, you know, what would you and Jan say is that season of the year where you basically, you know, work day and night and you hardly even stop to eat? And he said, for sure, without a doubt, Jan and I would both say it's the harvest. And he gave me a great, great mindset of of why that is. He says, just imagine working all year and then knowing if this last section of the year doesn't get done, you don't get paid for your whole year's work. That puts a lot of importance on that harvest, right? You could have had the best planting season. You could have had the best perfect rains, no hail, no storms. But if you don't get your butt out there and get the harvest in, you're not going to get paid. It's pretty important. And Jesus has his mind on the harvest as well. And so let's unpack this for a minute. What does this mean? That, that the harvest is what makes Jesus feel like, I don't even need to eat. I'm so excited about this work. And I think there's three big ideas that go into the harvest and the first thing is, Jesus, Jesus is so excited that he doesn't even eat because he's rescuing broken people and seeing them made new. He loves to do that. Seeing the guilt and the shame and the rejection lifted off of them, Jesus just can't get enough of it. And you know, he loved every minute of that walk to Samaria where the disciples are probably like, "Why are we here?" And Jesus is just thinking, "I can't wait to meet this woman at the well, and I just can't wait to see her." become new. Become who she's supposed to be. And some of you in here today, you're in that spot, you're carrying a lot of shame and guilt and condemnation and your identities and what people have said about you and what you were in the past. And Jesus says, just so you know, I can't wait to lift that off of you. I can't wait to see who you're going to be when your identity's in me and what I say about you. And what I say is true about you instead of what other people say is true about you. Jesus Loves rescuing broken people and making them new. Now, if you're a believer in here and you've been walking with Jesus for a while, this is a spot we need to ask ourselves a question. Do I get this excited about seeing broken people made new in Jesus? Because here's the sad reality as we read the Gospels. Most often, the religious people or God's people, when Jesus rescued someone who was really broken, I think that's all of us, but lots of People feel like they're not broken and they they get upset when Jesus rescues someone who is really actually broken. But they grumble about it. That's the truth. Throughout the gospels, we see it over and over again. The religious people, the people that have, you know, quote unquote served God, they get they get grouchy when Jesus rescues somebody who's broken. I'm wondering, is that us? Or do we have the same heart that He does? Do we love seeing? You know, somebody brought up that Kanye West became a Christian. I don't know. I looked at it and I was like. Well, cool if he did. That'd be awesome, right? Matter of fact, all the other rappers can join him. But wouldn't that be cool? Wouldn't we rejoice? Or would we say, hmm, I don't know. You know, I don't know. I, they, they probably don't know enough to be Christian, you know, or whatever. What would be the posture of our heart if God just started rescuing the broken people around us? I hope that our hearts would align with his heart because, guys, this is his thing. This is what he loves doing. And I'm wondering, do we love what Jesus loves? Because this makes him feel like, I don't even need to eat. This is Jesus on walleye tournament day. He loves this stuff. He gets jazzed up about it. He He doesn't even need to stop for food. And there's more. He gets equally excited seeing those, this is point number two, he gets equally excited seeing those same broken people who used to be broken now on mission with him bringing good news to the rest of the world, participating in the harvest. Isn't this awesome? And he's so excited because this can happen quickly. Yes, sometimes it takes months, weeks, years. But look at verse 36. Jesus is saying that this is so thrilling because sometimes, look at his terminology there, the sower and the reaper can rejoice together. Right? We have some people in here who love to garden. I'm not one of them. All right? And I love that you love to garden. I think it's an amazing project that we've done, having a garden out here and having a garden at Jack's Farm. And I love hanging out with you when we do gardening. But I would never just go plant a garden on my own. And I think it's the patience thing. It just takes too much time. It takes too much patience. You have to, you have to wait a long time. And I'd rather just have it now. And Jesus is saying, in this kind of gardening, in this kind of farming, you can actually have it now. It can happen really quickly. Because look at what happens here. He says, the sower and reaper can rejoice together. And according to this story... Jesus sows the gospel seed into this woman of Samaria. It sprouts up. She receives it. And she's harvested into the kingdom. And then she goes out and sows seeds of the gospel as the first missionary. Those seeds are planted and received. And more people are harvested in one afternoon. Can you imagine getting two harvests in one afternoon? That's what Jesus is saying. This is thrilling. This is exciting. It's happening quickly. And notice... woman's approach as she goes sowing the seeds. I think this is really important. It's nothing fancy. Look at verse 29. Maybe you're intimidated to share your faith. I hope this woman's going to coach us along here today. She says, come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Can this be the Christ? She shares her story with Jesus, her testimony. She doesn't overcomplicate it. She hardly knows anything. She just had an encounter with Jesus, but she's an incredible evangelist. Let's break this down a little bit. First, she says, come see a man. Come see Jesus. I got to say, that's really all you have to do when you're you're sharing your faith is get people to come and have a look at Jesus. It's not banging it down their throat. She's like, could this be the Christ? Why don't you come and see? Why don't you come and look at him with me? And you know, no other religion can say this about their founder. if you're a Muslim, you can't say, hey, come and see Muhammad and just look at him. No, it's come and see the five pillars and come and see what's required of you and come and, and, and look at the whole thing. We'll talk to my Imam and we'll, we'll, you know, we'll work through these things together. No, we just say, come and see Jesus. If you're a Buddhist, it's like, come and see the path to enlightenment and come and, come and do this. No, as Christians, all we have to say is, come and see Jesus. He is Christianity all by himself. It all hinges on Jesus, and that's what she says. Why don't you come see Jesus? Sometimes I think the problem is that we maybe know too much. Now, I'm going to be really careful here. I think theological work and study is incredibly important. We need systematic theology. We need good theologians in the church. We need to be working on that in our own lives. And in our discipleship, we should be learning and growing in our faith every single year and our knowledge of the canon of Scripture. But I think a lot of times, as we grow as Christians, we start wrestling with the bigger questions, the problem of evil and predestination and all those kinds of things. And those things we drag into our evangelism, right? I remember being in catechism class as a freshman in high school, and going through, like, we had the catechism just drilled into us, and I'm so thankful for that today. But I remember thinking, man, this is going to be really hard to explain to someone who doesn't know Jesus. <laughs> like, I'm going to need years to get through all this stuff, they really have to believe. And I'm just saying, don't worry about that stuff. There's time for systematic theology later. Just get them to Jesus. Like, leave that stuff behind when you go and introduce someone to Jesus. There's time to answer the questions and wrestle through things later. She doesn't know anything, and she's incredibly effective. So take some of the pressure off. What do I have to know? How good can I? How, how, um, how well do I need to communicate it? Not that great at all. She barely knew anything. She saves a whole, a whole village comes to Jesus because of her. I think sometimes the problem is we know too much, and you know, sadly, all the studies that are done today corroborate with this story. They say the newest Christians are the best at sharing their faith, and I have a mission that Life Church would see that curve inverted. That we see the old Christians are geniuses, just great fishermen, because the old fishermen that I know are really good they're crafty, and they know how to catch fish in every kind of condition. And I think the old Christians should be great at fishing for people. They should, they should know, hey, I don't need to bring that up. I'm just going to introduce them to Jesus. I'm just going to leave all that complicated stuff out because there's complicated stuff, right? There's big questions, and those are right, and those are good. And we want to walk with people through those things, but right out the gate, just get them to Jesus. He's the important thing, all right? I think it's so interesting that The first missionary in John's gospel is a Samaritan woman. You get that? It's pretty powerful. Maybe you've discounted yourself. You said, hey, I I don't think I can be, you know, a missionary. I don't think I can be a a person that invites other people to Jesus. I'm not winsome and and I'm not, you know, gregarious and charismatic. I'm not Pastor Bill, you know. (laughs) But, But hey, you don't need to be. You just need to have had an encounter with Jesus. That's what's important, and that's what she does. So that's the first thing. She says, come see Jesus. Then she says, come see a man who told me, this is a part of her story, told me everything that I ever did. That's really her story, right? And It's not everybody's story. Nicodemus wouldn't say that. Um, Nathaniel might, because he kind of got his book read under the fig tree. But she says, come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Now, why is this important to this woman of Samaria? Well, it's because she had been rejected On the basis of her past, I think that's really pretty clear from the text that she had gone through a ton of rejection on the basis of her past. And I just imagine her walking back to her village after this crazy encounter with Jesus. She's like, "Okay, what just happened?" She's just starstruck. Like, I I just can't even imagine. First of all, he asked me for a drink. I said, "Um, "Why? You know, are you sure?" And then, then he says he's got living water for me. And then somehow all my husbands are brought up and. What's going on here? So it's like he knew my whole story. And I think right there she just paused and said, Uh oh, he knew, he knew everything about me. Like he knew, he knew everything about me. And then I think she said, Wait a minute, he knew and he still offered me the living water. He still said, God has a gift for you. He knew me and yet he still loved me. In other words, Jesus saw the ugliest parts of her. And said, yep, I accept you. God has a gift for you. And isn't that what all of us are wanting at the deepest part of our core? To be completely known to the bottom of who we are, our darkest moments, and to be loved and accepted anyway. I think that's what all of us are wanting. And our greatest fear is that we'll be completely known and rejected, which is what this woman had been at least five times in marriage. She'd been known and rejected, but not this time. In Jesus, she finds both complete knowledge and complete love for the first time ever. She found living water, and as soon as she found it, she began to share it. This part of her story is so convicting for me. I mean, just think of the bravery this took. You know, she's already rejected by her community. And then to come in with this news, hey, look, I found the Messiah. Just imagine how people are going to respond like, why should we listen to you? I mean, they could have very easily said, "Look, you're this, and you're that, and you did this, and you did that," and reopen those wounds that have already begun to scab over. But what she had found in Jesus was just too precious; she couldn't not tell it. That was riskier for her than telling it. And I've just been asking myself this week: Have I found what this woman found in Jesus? Have I found living water like this that I just I couldn't not share it, regardless of the risk? Am I willing to risk a little rejection? to tell the good news about Jesus. To see Jesus' heart made glad because this is what he loves. He loves rescuing broken people and then putting them on mission with him. Finally, and third, the thing that's so thrilling to Jesus that he can hardly even think about food is seeing all the nations come to him for who he really is, the Savior of the world. Look at verse 41 and 42. And many believe because of his word. They said to the woman, it's no longer because of what you said that we believe. For we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. Savior of the world, that's an interesting term that in that day and age was, was, um, had just been used to, for the emperor. The emperor used that term to describe himself, kind of a humble guy, I guess. You know, I'm the Savior of the world, but now the Samaritan people start using this term to describe Jesus. And you see, Jesus has an eye for the individual, doesn't he? We see that throughout the Gospels. Like he sees Zacchaeus up in the tree, that little guy. And he sees, um, you know, the, the old frail lady with the flow of blood. He sees her in the midst of a crowd. He sees her. And he sees this rejected woman at the well in Samaria. But Jesus also, at the very same time, has an eye for the many, the crowds, the group, the nations, He's got his eyes on both. He can see the individual, and he can see the big picture. And he knows that when he reaches one, and never stops there. There's always a ripple effect. I think we need to ask ourselves, like, what's the ripple effect of Jesus reaching me? In other words, who has the gospel now because Jesus first got it to you? We can point to this woman's story and say, lots of people have the gospel now because Jesus first got it to her. But is that true for you and I? Or has the gospel stopped with us? Have we become a cul-de-sac when we should be a conduit? Just like Jesus said to the woman, it was true. He said, salvation indeed comes from the Jews. He's right. But as the Samaritan said, this salvation is actually for the whole world supposed to be for everybody. Jesus intended it to go to every nation. And this incident in Samaria starts a whole process of it going to every tribe, every tongue, every nation. And I think it's more than ironic that it starts with this hated group of outcasts, right? They're actually the first group as a whole, this village, to acknowledge Jesus for who he really is. I mean, remember, a big theme in John's gospel is that the Jews are rejecting Jesus as the Messiah, They've rejected Jesus as the Messiah. And here these Samaritans, these outcasts, are saying, you're the savior of the world. We see it. It's incredible. I think it's telling that Jesus made a point of going to them first after the Jews. And I also don't think it's an accident that the first missionary to them is from their own people and probably one of the most unlikely persons. But this is really what makes Jesus' heart pound. This is what keeps him up at night. This is what makes it so that he feels like he doesn't even need to eat. broken people would be rescued, that they would join him in his mission, and that all the nations would hear this good news, that Jesus is the Savior of the world, that he's the living water. And how did Jesus make this possible for the Samaritan woman, for the rest of her village? How did he do it for you and I? Well, he hasn't done it yet, but he knew he was about to. See, because when Jesus hung on the cross, he endured the flames of hell the most intense heat of God's wrath toward our sin, and it utterly scorched him. He faced the ultimate dehydration for us. And in the midst of it, you remember in the Gospels, he cried out, I thirst. It parched him. And according to John's Gospel, they gave him some sour wine on a sponge, not exactly a refreshing drink, but he took it and then he gave up his spirit and died. Your friends, don't you see it today? Jesus withered to the point of death so that you and I can have the living water. He was shriveled up so that you and I can be eternally refreshed. He was cast out from God's presence so that as outcasts, you and I and the woman of Samaria can be brought into God's family. It's the truth. It's the good news for us today. I don't know where this story finds you. You know, maybe you're here and your past is one you'd like to avoid too. Jesus has living water for you. He has a mission for you to accomplish. He wants you on his team doing God's work. It's impossible to miss here. Maybe you're here and you feel like you've been rejected by friends, by family, by coworkers. You feel like you don't have a place, you don't belong anywhere. Jesus says you belong with me. I was cast out so that you can be brought into God's family. Maybe you're here today As a believer, and you've really struggled with this idea of sharing your faith. I mean, I have. I'll just be really honest. Like, I've had seasons where I've done well and seasons where I just, like, lose it. And this woman of Samaria, she just really, really challenges me. And maybe you're hearing you've really discounted yourself. You said, no, I couldn't be, God's not going to use me in that kind of way. But that's just impossible to believe that there's any type of person from this text. I mean, if God uses this woman of Samaria, he'll use anybody. He'll use anybody. And I wanna encourage you in a few things as we close this morning. I want you to just start by praying. Start asking the Lord for his heart, for his eyes for the harvest. This isn't, a, this isn't a normal human thing to get this. This is something the Holy Spirit has to give to us, right? Like, God, let me see with your eyes. Let me see how you feel about the nations, about the people around me in my, my community, in my, in my workplace, my friends, my family. Help me to see them how you see them with your heart. Ask him to help you see those opportunities with those people placed around you and then ask him for courage, the courage like the woman at the well. You know, this is simple, sharing Jesus and getting them to Jesus, but it's not easy. Anything but easy. You're going to be intimidated every time. And then keep it simple like she did. Learn to invite people to Jesus. Don't overcomplicate it. Meditate on the work that the Lord's done in your life. Get really familiar with that story And then share that story. It's a compelling story. It's your story. You do this, and like the woman of Samaria, you too will be used by Jesus to bring many people in the harvest to him, which in turn will bring him much joy. Amen? Amen, let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for this story that you've written down for us to read and all the things that it speaks to us. And I pray just, Holy Spirit, right now, you would do your work in this text. There's so many places that I didn't cover adequately, and and I just pray that you would use this to bring truth into our hearts today, that you would speak the word that only you can speak to each person's heart today, whatever they're needing to hear. You would go now and, and do that good work, and that it would all be for your glory, and that your name could go to the ends of the earth that every tribe, tongue, and nation would hear the good news about Jesus and what you've done for us. It's in your good name we pray. Amen.